It's not a case of believing. It's knowing. I look for answers, and I saw these up close and personal, so nobody can tell me that I didn't, and I got pictures of them. Are there really alien beings? I've even been out there at 2, 3 in the morning and heard the crashing in the bushes, and it comes right up. You can't see anything. Sometimes you feel this wave of cold come over you. Sometimes you feel this, this wave of fright. I guess I've never seen or read anything that made me believe it was true, and I'm just naturally kind of skeptical. He said he ran into a family of them that he used to say how they used to speak to each other like that, like a gurgle. That's how they used their language. <laughs> how come some people believe in Sasquatch? You gotta ask that some people. The way that we live right now is so incredible that why can't there be another way that other people, other things or creatures live that is also incredible? Hey, this is Jim Brunberg, and you're listening to Rome Schooled, a show about the pleasure of finding things out. I ask a lot of questions, and so do my six-year-old daughters, Dana and Vern. And so their questions are the launch points for this show. But this isn't some family-friendly Saturday afternoon kids show. This is for you, the grown-ups. You're driving right now, or you're sitting at home relaxing. Well, I'm driving the Winnebago. The kids are in the back, they're asking lots of questions, and we want answers. We don't want to stare at a screen or turn on our smartphones or other devices. Instead, let's go find out. In this episode, we reach beyond belief into the realms of wonder and intrigue, beyond the scientific, beyond religion. Um, We drove through the American Southwest for this episode, and we'll talk to people about their personal perspectives on Bigfoot, aliens, auras, music as the language of God and more. I've carried my intense skepticism with me, but I've started to wonder, am I so sure that my scientific reduction of the laws of physics is so complete and accurate that there isn't room for some beliefs from the beyond? In preparing for this topic, I asked the girls about some of their beliefs. After I lost a tooth, the tooth fairy called us on the phone, and I forget what we talked about, but um, she sounded Chinese. How do you know it was a tooth fairy? Um, because the phone had pictures of her. Oh, a picture of her showed up on the phone? Yeah. What if it wasn't really the tooth fairy? Um, hmm. Okay, I'm told that I will pay direly for this later in their lives, but I may have had some knowledge of how that picture got into my phone, and I may also know why the Tooth Fairy has a Chinese accent, or, to be more exact, a Tagalog accent. But for right now, let's not blow my cup. I mean, let's, let's just talk about that another time. For now, what do you believe in, and why? Or why not? Have you ever been fooled by somebody who was proposing sort of an out-there belief? And if so, are you any worse for the ruse? When I was a kid, I remember being convinced that I saw Santa Claus in the hallway, hat and all, from behind, uh, when I heard sleigh bells and I ran out of my bedroom. It was the same year that one of my school friends told me that this was something that only babies believed in. He was wrong, I just knew it. The question for today's episode is, Has anybody ever given you a hard time for a belief of yours? And if so, why? Forget about religion, if you can, for this hour. I'm not going to tackle the litany of questions that the girls seem to ask about that. Just for now, I want to focus on the roots of our beliefs. What makes us believe in things or not? Do we have to see them or feel them, uh, prove them, or just be told by a trusted source? We'll talk to some people in this episode whose beliefs may seem, at first, to be pretty out there, But, in my opinion at least, they seem to be at least parallel to or in harmony with science and Earth, or they at least make an attempt to find some common ground. So, spoiler alert, nobody's going to ask you for money in this episode, and nobody is going to claim to be God or to have talked to God. I will be a fortune teller for a second and predict the future by saying that I know there will be some new idea in this show for you. I just don't know which one it's going to be. So... Let's step into the old Winnebago and go find out. Our first stop, Los Angeles, where we talk to 
one of my musical heroes, and one of the most globally respected, historically significant composers in modern music. Yeah, uh, this is Van Dyke Parks, and I'm a composer, arranger, and uh, continue to arrange and orchestrate and write music. That's my, my world. Music is uh, akin to religion. As a matter of fact, mu music is my religion. That, that can be felt in any good musical work of any sort. You go somewhere special when you're listening to music. I find as well when you're making music, it's, it's true in my case, I don't know what I'm doing. So I simply follow my nose and I try to answer to a higher power and um, I get places that I never would have expected to go and after all is said and done and the music has been heard I often say to myself when I'm hearing what I've done whatever was I thinking. To me uh, music is the voice of God I mean to me that's what it is and um, um, there's nothing sinister in that or, or uh, dogmatic, but that's just the way I feel. That's why I, I uh, sat in all those church pews when I was a child. I never put any chewing gum under a pew. I would never do something like that. And I had a perfect attendance in Sunday school, and the reason that I did it is because it had a musical component. That's the only thing that I could understand and that would get me to shut up. I'm very happy with uh, what I've done and thrilled that I have more plans for more music that I do not know how it will unfold any more than you know exactly what you will see in the windshield <laughs> as you travel with this beautiful show and your beautiful daughters. I'm very happy that I was a bug on your windshield. I just don't understand how it's a religion. Religion that's not music. There's an expression called a work of art, and it means you worked on something and it's a piece of art. You practice. You use a bow or you use your fingers or a guitar pick. You worked on it, and it's a piece of art. I think it comes from your heart. The music. It takes work to make music, uh, uh, no matter how talented or limited you are, and, and uh, I have to work very hard to get musical results. There are all these various languages that is harmonic, melodic, and rhythmic that deserve to be explored. Van Dyke Parks' music is incredibly complex at times and beautiful and very strange at times. He's worked with many of the greats like Randy Newman and Brian Wilson. In fact, many people credit Van Dyke Parks with inspiring Brian Wilson to take his band, the Beach Boys, from being a popular harmony boy band to being one of the most important music-making entities of all time. Now, such inspired genius in the studio is not always the most popular thing, and if you've seen documentaries about Brian Wilson or the Beach Boys, Van Dyke Parks is the one who gets asked to leave the studio or the pool party after inspiring our heroes with such a rich, complicated tapestry of musical language. He went on to make records with U2, with Walt Disney, and has made every kind of music from boleros to dubstep. And in 1995, he got back together with Brian Wilson to make one of my favorite records, Orange Crate Art. I wanted to share a few more of his thoughts about the intersection between music and faith and belief, because it leads so perfectly into the next person that we're going to talk to. To me, this is what we should embrace, the, 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 the right to, to be irregular, to be those nails that haven't been hammered down. And have a degree of individuality and you find that great joy in in writing music if you're a good musician you can play what someone has written i haven't done that in a long time and i don't intend to start now that would i mean i can't often uh uh play what i write but there comes a time when you're liberated from the process and you can rely on what you've done and, and explore it. And I, I'm there now. I will tell you, the notes that we use, anybody who picks up a Fender guitar, the notes we use are derived from the Greeks. And the, and the, and the guy who did that, who played the most 
the principal role in all of that was the mathematician Pythagoras. And Pythagoras codified the modes, that is the, the octave, which is the Ionian mode, the Dorian, the Phrygian, the Lydian, the Mixolydian, the Hypermixolydian, the Aeolian. He created these modes to please certain gods, and each temple that was built kept that in mind. The marble would resonate on the temple, subsonics, bringing a fundamental to the temple. Architecture was that attuned to music, and music was intended as a tribute to a god. We have here at Rosicrucian Park a statue of Pythagoras, who was one of the most important philosophers of the Western world. He was obviously an extremely spiritual person, besides being a mathematical genius. So the Rosicrucian Order is a worldwide fraternal and sororal order. We are seekers who study philosophy, spirituality, mysticism, the arts, sciences, etc., from a non-religious but spiritual viewpoint. We practice mysticism, which is the direct connection of the person with the divine, however one conceives the divine to be. Okay, are you ready? We're going to take the next step into beliefs of the beyond here with Rome Schooled. When we get there, you're going to find yourself on the streets of San Jose, California, in front of what looks like an Egyptian pyramid or something. What it is, is an entire city block of ornate buildings with Egyptian architecture, including a planetarium and a museum that houses the largest collection of mummies in North America. And also housed there is the world headquarters for an organization called the Rosicrucians. One of these Rosicrucians, Steve Armstrong, sat down with us to explain his beliefs, or lack of beliefs, We'll let him explain. So, my name is Stephen Armstrong. Well, I was a Jesuit for 24 years, and I, I was ordained to the Melkite Greek Catholic Church and a pastor in San Francisco. I first encountered the Rosicrucian Order in 1977. Like most people, I think I had probably seen it in the, the advertisements that we used to run in the 60s and 70s. Woody, Woody Allen, actually, in one of his movies, said... I'm a Rosicrucian myself. I am? Yeah. I can't get with any religion that advertises in popular mechanics. But I was... Here, visiting in San Jose, just before I was getting ready to enter the Jesuit order, and I was walking around the neighborhood, and suddenly I turned a corner, and shazam, here was Egypt, <laughs> in the middle of San Jose. <laughs> so I went to the museum, I picked up the booklet Mastery of Life. Now, I was on another trajectory at that point, but the seed was planted. And so, as I grew in my own spiritual and mystical life, and it came time for me uh, to leave the Jesuit order, which I loved very much, because of my experience of being a gay man and believing firmly in the equality of women, I began to have problems with the church's positions on those issues. It was time to leave. And uh, the fact that I'd fallen in love also didn't hurt. <laughs> but uh, the church has its rules. I might disagree with them, but they're there and everybody knows them. And you need to play by the rules. This was a natural home for me to come to. Uh, because it is so non-dogmatic, non it's so accepting, and there's a tremendous diversity of people who respect one another. An old uh, professor of mine, Archbishop Joseph Raya, the Melkite Greek Catholic Archbishop of Galilee, he once startled a uh, New York Times interviewer by saying theology is poison. There's an archbishop saying this. <laughs> what he meant was, in any given religion, if you have not had the experience of the divine and you're trying to talk about it, it's ridiculous. First experience spirituality, experience the divine, then maybe you can talk about it. The mystic needs neither priests nor kings to intercede between the person and the divine. And so it is, in fact, that absolutely direct connection, which can go along with religion, but it doesn't have to be connected to religion. And that's us. We are mystics who are not focused on religion. But this stuff sounds religious. I mean, to, to my um, sp Pacific Northwest ears, all this ritual and mystical stuff sounds religious. Well, ritual and symbolism are certainly part of the mystical life, the mystical experience. You know, nowadays, people say, oh, it's just symbolic, meaning it's not real. That's the opposite of what the word symbol actually means. Symbol means is symboling, to put together in Greek. The uh, 
king would send out two secret agents who didn't know one another, and each would have half of a token. They would recognize one another by symboling, putting it together. Symbol noun from symbolon token watchword signed by which one infers ticket a permanent license, literally that which is thrown or cast together. The evolution in Greek is from throwing things together. Token used in comparisons to determine if something is genuine. The meaning something which stands for something else first recorded in 1590 in the Fairy Queen. Uh-huh. That's an old way of spelling Fairy Queen. <laughs> That's a weird way to spell Queen. So what a symbol does is it unites two different parts of reality as above, so below, is the ancient adage, uh, that otherwise could not be united. And a ritual is simply a set of symbols, a set of active symbols, you might say. And so what we are doing by, for instance, one of our morning traditions is to stand facing the sun and, and do breathing exercises. Through the symbol of the sun and breathing, etc., we are uniting ourselves to higher levels of being, which we wouldn't be able to without that. Ritual then brings a whole group of people together who each have their own lives. And yet by using the symbolic ritual, those experiences which are completely diverse can be united and we can then have a shared experience. What all of these things do is they begin to raise us, we, we say on a vibratory level. We know now from physics that everything is vibration. And Rosicrucians have been teaching that for centuries. It's, it's one of the core pieces of our teachings. When we raise ourselves in a, on a vibratory level, this is extremely practical. We do vowel chanting. We magnetize water by chanting and holding it uh, near the solar plexus. There's a fellow in Japan, a scientist who's done a number of studies, what he calls living water and dead water. Living water is in streams and such as that. Dead water comes through our pipes. There's a different vibrational structure that can be actually detected. He's done experiments in freezing. If it's been done in a, a surrounding of peace and love, it turns out one way. If you're shouting and yelling as it's freezing, it turns out another way. Uh, so these, these, these things are not matters of belief. They're, they're matters of science, really. And these are some things that we do actually in our public uh, rituals, not just the ones for members only. What we're doing is we're participating, you might say, in the great dance of the vibratory nature of all that is, the whole multiverse. If you have a confused look on your face um, when you try to put this into the context of science, you're not alone. I feel the same way. So I, I asked our host how he could reasonably fit some of this stuff under the umbrella of science with repeatability and peer review and all of the, the normal rules around scientific research, and he had an interesting response. Well, I think that um, one of the things about uh, the order's uh, teachings and findings over the centuries is that science generally catches up with us. Modern science, quantum physics and, and many other fields, is opening its horizons and realizing that the Newtonian laws are fine if you want to build a house but you can't get to Mars with Newtonian physics and standard geometry, Euclidean geometry. You have to use something else that understands that space is curved. So one of the big goals of, of the Rosicrucians is to bring science and spirituality back together again. As you probably know, many uh, top scientists are, in fact, very spiritual people. Einstein was, for example. It's true. Einstein was one of those people that you read about that has views that seem almost irreconcilable. You can't quite figure out how somebody could be so devoutly spiritual, yet also so doggedly scientific. Well, maybe it's this paradox that makes this such an interesting dilemma, or maybe it's not a dilemma at all. Maybe it's just something wonderful, in the real sense of the word. The girls have been incredibly turned on by this entire conversation, so much that when we return to Portland, where we have our own sort of a dichotomy of lifestyles. Um, they go back to public schools, and I go back to my life in the music business when I'm not doing this Rome School show. And that's when the girls start asking people around them all of the questions that they've generated while we've been out on the road. So they started asking 
their favorite people in Portland. Just as soon as we got back and piled out of the RV, one of the first people they ran into was our friend Maya, who lives a life that is sort of her own strange mix of passions. She's a security guard and bouncer at a popular rock club in Portland. She's also a fashion designer, and, well, she'll tell you more about herself when she answers uh, Dana's question about fairies. I believe in fairies. I believe in magic. I think magic is a thing. I believe in miracles. I feel like miracles can happen, but belief is, like, personal, so you can believe in anything, really. I believe in ghosts, which is kind of scary. <laughs> but, <laughs> What kind of magic and ghosts? I believe in the kind of magic of, like, personal magic. Like, I can make magic in my life through my mind, like, the things that I believe in. So it doesn't have to be scary magic. It's, like, the good kind of magic. Like, if I need a miracle to happen in my life, I'll believe it into existence kind of magic. So five years ago, when I was in the Navy, I got really sick, really, really sick, to the point where I think they were telling me, like, I had an enlarged heart and I couldn't continue to serve. And I got home and I wished and I prayed and I did all these things to, to the point where I got better. And within a year, there was like no sign of that anymore. I have brought my own magic and here we are today, healthy as ever. My heart is literally bigger than the average person's <laughs> these days, but it hasn't slowed me down at all. Yeah. What about fairies? Ooh, fairies, I feel like fairies do like all the little things in life that like, you know, small things. Find the keys for you and <laughs> you're like, ah, I can't find anything. They're looking out. Like fairies are there looking out for you. All the all the ones that save you from <laughs> the bad ideas. I believe in monsters, but I used to when I was little. And I also used to be Afraid of the dark. I just felt like there was monsters in my closet that stuck up on me while I was sleeping. Why did your belief change? Are Sasquatch real? Who's Sasquatch? The furry creature that's brown and lives in the woods. I don't think it's real. Why not? I just don't think it's possible. Where would they live? But if they're covered with fur, they don't need houses. They just like, they're like deer or bears. Deer have a living spot, and bears have to have a cave so when they sleep in the winter. Well, have you ever seen a bear cave? No. Well, how do you know there's not a Sasquatch cave? People always ask, do you believe in Bigfoot? Uh, a belief implies accepting something in the absence of evidence. The word belief really is sort of anti-science. Uh, maybe a better question would be just how good is the evidence for something like the existence of Sasquatch. It should not be framed as belief. Belief is something that we hold to be true despite the lack of evidence. So it may be appropriate to speak of our belief in God, but then a more scientific question is how good is the evidence for uh, the existence of a God or gods. My, my grandfather would tell me about Sasquatch to scare me so that I didn't go out in the woods. And so I didn't get lost or, you know, didn't misbehave as a child. The stories, however, I really believe. I think that's partly because, like, I really trust my grandfather and, like, really respect him. Um, it's, I don't know, it's, I believe in Sasquatch. <laughs> a lot of the things that I believe in my life are because I've been taught by my family. I've grown up hearing these statements and hearing, hearing things and I just, I, I trust them and I love them and so that's my way of life. I believe in what they say. Most of these beliefs also have to do with teachings from my family and from my ancestry and I think teachings are something that I believe in first, and then also whatever else is um, that comes out of the teachings is what I believe in. My name's Tom Powell. I'm a career science teacher for Portland Public Schools. Scientifically, there's a whole lot more to this world than we understand. Uh, over on the wall is a, a letter from Carl Sagan next to a baloney detector. 
Carl Sagan's statement was the most important thing that kids should take away from their education is a well-developed baloney detection kit. And I thought that was a perfect statement in terms of how to be appropriately skeptical. So I made a baloney detector out of construction paper and it's always stuck on high. And that really gets to this idea of belief versus something more scientific. When it, when it comes to the existence of Sasquatch, there isn't a great deal of scientifically acceptable evidence. Therefore, we're left with this question of whether or not we believe in Bigfoot. But I do know that the evidence for the existence of a group of beings that we call the Sasquatch is probably better than most people realize. There are hairs. There are footprints. There are maybe other sort of indirect indications that the creatures are there disturbances in the landscape that we can't explain any other way slaughtered animals um, beds and caves that have uh, signs of residence by some intelligent set of beings so there's a, there's a bunch of evidence that really falls into the category of anecdotal. I found neighbors in my immediate area who told me with a straight face that this Sasquatch mystery, which I ridiculed, was in fact a, a matter of truth. So I followed some of their information, expecting to debunk the phenomenon, and found that I could not do it. I started putting cameras in the woods. I found that when I put the cameras out, but the cameras were being dismantled, taken down from the trees, or covered up with foliage, but never stolen and never broken. We're dealing with intelligent beings, and they actually have a disdain for cameras because they understand what the cameras are. That is an attempt to document, to take their picture in ways that, that they're averse to. The woman whose voice you heard a few minutes ago is named Catherine Paul, and she offered to talk to some of her elders back at the Swinomish Reservation where she's from. She took a ride with her dad, and in doing so became the first field reporter for Rome Schooled. I want you to tell me some stories about Sasquatch. Sasquatch? Yeah. Oh, are you recording now? Yep. Well, back in the 50s, uh, my um, grandma's third husband, um, Alfred Sampson Sr. He used to tell a story when he he walked, uh, as he was coming up through this trail, he came up through an open area, and in this open area, he walked into, he saw it from a distance, laying down, stretched out, and his hands over its head, laying on a log, all stretched out, and he saw that, and he go, oh my God. He, so he quietly backed up and went back to that trail and came home. He always shared that story with us. Another story he would tell us about where they go and to pick wild blackberries. When we were kids, we used to go up into one area behind our reservation, and he said, you kids never come up here alone. There's a steetot, that's Sasquatch, Bigfoot. That's how you say it in Swinomish. But in your dad's language, your grandpa's language, which is Colville, how they say Sasquatch, Squinitum. Squinitum. That's how they say it in Colville. And um, your other great-grandpa, Philip Paul, when he used to horseback through the Cascades, they used to follow him. That was Squinitum. Squinitum. And your cousin Donnie, he had stories about uh, Sasquatch over down, down by um, Mount St. Helens, not there, Glenwood area. He said he ran into a family of them. And he used, to, he used to say how they used to speak to each other, like that, like a gurgle. Like that's how they'd hear, that's how they used to language. That's how they used to talk to each other, like that. So Donnie, he used, he used to share a lot of stories and, you know. Do you believe in Sasquatch then? I do. I saw one uh, not long ago, last, uh, last spring. We saw, I, I saw a figure of a, of a Sasquatch. Where? Up going towards the Shaker Church, past the Shaker Church, uh, at the reservation in Swinomish. But there's been sightings uh, about Sasquatch up at uh, Swinomish. Mm -hmm.
So the, the truth is no amount of, of uncertain maybe evidence is going to convince the scientific community that Sasquatches exist. One of Carl Sagan's statements is particularly true. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. What I'm doing and what many of the people who are also researching the Sasquatch hypothesis are actually doing is closer to intelligence gathering than scientific investigation per se. I don't think we can do science on the Sasquatch. Science is something that can only be done under extremely controlled circumstances that can be then replicated. You you cannot scientifically study intelligent creatures that are also making every effort to stay rogue, stay out of the way. It's like trying to scientifically investigate Osama bin Laden. That's not what the CIA did or does. What they do is gather intelligence. They understand that every bit of information they get is unverifiable, but they don't throw it away. They save it all. They put it up on the wall in the form of sticky notes or something, and they look for patterns. And once they assemble a pattern, they take it to its logical conclusion. They're looking for what they call actionable intelligence, something that you can actually take and then do something with. And that's certainly what I'm doing with respect to the Sasquatch hypothesis. I'm gathering actionable intelligence if possible. I'm spying more than sciencing. Uh, the reason I'm doing that is twofold. Number one, I know I can't do science. It's it's too cumbersome and, and expensive. I'm doing sort of a pre-science undertaking. Maybe the intelligence will be useful toward someday structuring a scientific investigation. There is really no information that refutes that they are there. In fact, there's plenty of room, there's plenty of opportunity, there certainly is is habitat, and there is an ecological niche that they can occupy. It seems like the Sasquatch have been there all along, but with the incursion of vast amounts of European settlers, the, the, the Sasquatch phenomenon has retreated to the shadows. I think it has to do with the location of where they live. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, and the the reservation that I live on is is on an island. However, it's a really big island. It's the Fidalgo Island. And then surrounding, like if you go further into um, Washington, there is so much forest. Um, there's just woods and trees, like tall evergreens. It's very thick at times. So I feel like because of how, how vast it is and how far it stretches, if somebody knows the woods very well. If something knows the woods very well, they can definitely hide themselves and figure out a way to live. I totally believe that. So we're told by Indian sources that the Sasquatch are these super ecological beings that are extremely in tune with the landscape and the earth. They they can't embrace or endorse our way of life, that it's too destructive long-term to the ecosystem, to the planet. I don't think of them as humans. I, I think of them as, as another being, um, as like another entity. Uh, my grandfather has described Sasquatch as being super tall, like as tall as 20 feet and had huge feet and just like walked around. So that's, to to me, I don't necessarily think that Sasquatch are these humans that, you know, uh, broke off from society and decided to like live by themselves in the woods. I think of them as almost a supernatural being. There's another story that my uncles would tell me um, they they are hunters and so they would go hunting a lot in Eastern Washington. one time they were hunting for some deer and they were up in this hilly area and all of a sudden they like kind of smelled something sulfury and turned around and saw one Sasquatch looking at them and being very scared they pulled up their gun (laughs) and um, right as they pulled up their gun they like saw all of these other Sasquatch 
come into uh, view because apparently they had run into a family of Sasquatch and so they decided to just run down the hill and then their truck was parked not too far away because they were able to get to it and just take off. You can interact with it but only within certain limits. I've even been out there at two, three in the morning and heard the crashing in the bushes and it comes right up to my position and it's standing seemingly within five or ten feet of my position. I strain to see what it is. I can't see anything. Uh, sometimes you feel this wave of cold come over you. Sometimes you feel this, this wave of fright that makes you want to run. And sometimes you do run and sometimes you stand your ground and, and try to uh, bring the phenomenon a little bit more to the fore. Uh, I've always been told that they just want to be by themselves, that they just want to live their own lives um, in peace. I mean, I've never met one, so <laughs> it's hard for me to, to, fully, to fully say, but I feel like the world we live in is very big, and um, there's other, like, societies out there. The way that we live right now is so incredible that why can't there be another way that other people, other things or creatures live that is also incredible? How so? How, how is the way we live incredible? We're living and breathing and we have these our minds and we think and we feel things and um, we can make amazing things in the world so I I, I I believe that if we can do that then other things can in their own way yeah now we've started to embrace the possibility that there is communication by way of telepathy so we're bringing these psychics or sensitives out there and one fellow studied under shamans in Ecuador and he gets names and he even has submitted requests can we see you answer no uh, well, why not well it's a rule among our people that we are not to be seen by you I've never been seen by you folks, and I'm not about to make that mistake now. He asks, well, how many of you are there? Well, there, there's me and my son. Uh, do you have a husband? Yes. Well, where is he? Uh, the star people took him. When's he going to be back? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Things like that. Got to go now. <laughs> do you ever think that maybe you can read somebody's mind? No. Me neither. I'm skeptical about that stuff. Me, sometimes I know what people are thinking. Well, only because they're making a face or something, right? No. No? How do you know when, what people are thinking? Like, I think Nika's thinking about cheetahs. Right now she's thinking what a cheetah costume could be. We were trying to read your mind. What were you thinking? Um, I was thinking if the helicopter would make too much noise recording you. Oh. Ah. Uh. <laughs> That's not what we were guessing. What were you guessing? Uh, that you were thinking about where your cheetah costume could be? That was our first and only experiment with telepathy. Not very effective. But a good guess on Dana's part, since Vern, or Nika as her sister calls her, is almost always thinking about her cheetah costume. More on that later. It, it's great stuff. You, you can't prove it. You can't disprove it. No one has to know you're doing it. It doesn't cost you anything. It's fascinating. Uh, it's intelligence gathering. It's not science. A lot of people criticize folks who are interested in things like the Sasquatch because they're essentially paranormal. Paranormal really just represents the scientific frontier. That doesn't scare me. If anything, it intrigues me. I think science, in its purest form, invites and even requires one to explore the limits of our current knowledge as a means of adding to it. If you want to move forward with a body of knowledge, you really have to venture up to and maybe step beyond the edges of what science can even do. Do you believe in Sasquatch or fairies? I definitely believe in Sasquatch, and I want to believe in fairies just because I think that they're so cool and sparkly. But Sasquatch, definitely. Because in all the places in the world that I've traveled to, each country and each culture has a really interesting take on monsters in the forest. And, they call, and it goes with all different names. So in Greenland, there was an ice rock monster. In Alaska, there's an ice 
monster in First Nations. There's a coyote figure. Now, everybody must be up to something. Just because they haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not there. Down here, it's Sasquatch. My feeling is everybody should be free to investigate whatever and however they see fit. Do it your way. Publish, please, your findings, and let's see uh, what ideas gain ascendancy. What we're seeing is that if you're in the vicinity of uh, the Sasquatch, they are sometimes there, but you cannot see them. That They are literally within sight, but for some reason, they have the ability to perceptually interfere with what you're experiencing, but the camera fleshes them out and they understand that. Extreme skeptics are usually people who are heavily invested in a point of view. When that point of view is being challenged, there's going to be some pushback. I understand that, so I don't waste a lot of time trying to undo the thinking of a skeptic. I think skeptics are also people who are invested in a scientific framework for the entire world we experience. And when someone suggests that elements of the world defy scientific quantification, uh, that's a troubling concept as well. To the skeptic, it's, it's troubling to take on things such as telepathic contact and greater psychic powers because that exposes the idea that much of what they hold true is wrong. Uh, Galileo was squashed because he showed the powers that were in the 1600s that their view of the cosmos was incorrect. It's a lot easier to kill the messenger than it is to embrace a line of thinking that basically illustrates this disturbing view. Everything you know is wrong. In, uh, in March 1997, tens of thousands of people in Phoenix, Arizona, witnessed lights over the city, including the governor, members of city council, and a medical doctor and health advocate named Lynn Kitai. She's written a book about it, has made a film about it, and she was kind enough to take some time to sit with us in the Winnebago to talk about it. And people ask me all the time, well, what were the Phoenix lights? I don't know. I might not know who they are, but I know that they are. These phenomena have been here since human documentation began. There are etched out drawings on primitive caves in Pakistan and Peru uh, of long extinct animals, but in the sky are UFOs that we would call UFOs today. Uh, the 15th and 16th centuries, there are pictures of, and frescoes of people on the ground looking up at the sky with UFOs in the sky right there with beings in the UFOs. Where did they get these ideas? A hundred years before our mass sighting in 1897 in Kansas, and it's documented in the papers as well as California and Washington and Canada, they were seeing massive airships, they called them, with removable lights six years before the Wright brothers took flight. There's so much documentation of similar unexplained aerial phenomena, UAP, that have graced our skies for, for centuries. I'm a healthy skeptic, okay? Most anomalies can be explained, only a small percentage cannot. Just because we don't have the technology yet to definitively define what those things are, doesn't mean they're not real. We may be looking on the AM dial for an FM frequency. So it's time we get this topic out in the open, and that's why I came forward after seven years of anonymity and intense research, searching for a logical explanation, which almost 19 years later now, I have yet to find. But it's time we get this topic out in the open. Enough with the ridicule and the snickering and the discrediting. And study it so we can find out not only who's driving these things, but also move forward in our own evolution because we're right, right at the precipice of a new reality. 
NASA, Kepler, and the Hubble telescope have told us there's trillions of other galaxies out there, each with their own suns, their own stars, with their own planets. They're now discovering that life is viable everywhere, not only in the hot springs of Yellowstone to the frozen Arctic lakes. When a star explodes, there are organic materials, oxygen, nitrogen, the ingredients for life are out there. In fact, just in 2014, November of 2014, the Russian cosmonauts saw living entities that actually plankton, which whales and so forth, feed on to get oxygen. They're out in space. So the, the ingredients of life are out there. There could be sentient, intelligent beings out there that are billions of years ahead of us. Normally, we have a rule on this show. No internet, no devices, cell phones, smartphones. But when we got home, this thing about the cosmonauts finding plankton on the ISS was just plaguing me. And I couldn't find anything about it in American news sources. The only thing out there said TASS, the Russian news agency, and the Russian leader of the ISS team had issued a press release. This has all pretty much disappeared from American news agencies and was never picked up or reported on at the NASA site. I know this because I'm a total space nerd. So I asked my Russian friend Anna to do a little research on the Russian language sites to see if she could find anything about it there. And this is what she found. Okay, so first of all, um, there are different versions of what happened. The very official site says that it was an experiment that was planned and they collected samples and they looked for something, they found something. Another one says that uh, two guys were launching a nanosatellite and since they were already out, they cleared up some um, windows, illuminators, and then looked at the, you know, a cloth. And I kind of tend to believe that a little more. Um, and yet other sources say that it was NASA that found this plankton or whatever it was. So, I don't know, there are a lot of different versions and uh, I generally don't trust Russian official media. So, I don't know. As I said, I'm a healthy skeptic. I had no interest or knowledge in the UFO topic at all, okay? I look for answers, and I saw these up close and personal, so nobody can tell me that I didn't. And I got pictures that I have had analyzed by military, by university, by Brooks Institute of Photography. I mean, across the board, no one could tell me what they are. They can tell me what they're not but they're true unknowns. The public needs to know the truth. There is so much negative and, and fearful uh, information out there about uh, you know threat, 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 and harm, 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 and abductions, and all kinds of things. I didn't want any part of it. I saw a movie about aliens. Yeah. And they're called The Grave. Yeah. And it was a movie called Dark Skies. Mm, which was scary. It was. What happens? So the greys take a child at the end. Ooh. We're coming back to get you, Gagoo. <laughs> um, after the mass sighting, there was no investigation, no explanation. It was uncanny because here, even as a public safety situation, you would think there would be something. There was nothing, and after nothing. For months, Councilwoman Frances Barwood innocently, because many of her constituents had contacted her saying, why isn't there an investigation? Why isn't there an explanation? It really was bizarre. When she did ask for it in May, she was blasted by the print media. I mean, it wasn't until three years later she was running for Secretary of State to get answers for the Phoenix Lights mass sighting. And she was asking for a reenactment, as most of us were. Hey, you know, if it's military, I'm a healthy skeptic. Show me. Do it again. Right before the third anniversary of the mass sighting, we get the announcement that three Air National Guards are coming into Phoenix to show everybody the Phoenix lights. Hooray. Finally. And we were ready. The Air National Guard did come, for whatever reason, and they put on their reenactment of what they were claiming constituted the Phoenix lights, but it didn't convince anybody. Apparently it didn't look anything like what tens of thousands of people had seen in March of 1997 and on other occasions. 
I don't understand this part of the story. And, again, there's not much documentation um, other than the newspapers. So this is just one of those stories that you just ride along with and play back in your head as you're roaming. One thing to note is that you shouldn't expect some satisfying Scooby-Doo rip-the-mask-off-the-culprit ending to this story. There really isn't one. It remains a mystery to this day, and a lot of people in Phoenix are still very active on this front. The Phoenix Lights definitely were not flares. What they are, can't tell you. And they've continued to appear worldwide. What's really interesting, when I came forward finally, after seven years, after much soul-searching, because I did not want to come forward for a number of reasons. Being a medical doctor, um, the, the precarious situation of coming forward with such controversial material as a scientist, as an educator, as a physician to let people know they're not crazy, okay? Even though most anomalies can be explained, when somebody has a paranormal experience, it's real to them. And if you don't share it, and most people are afraid to share it because of the ridicule and the criticism and the laughing and snickering, it festers, and that's not healthy. Just sharing with one person, even if just just me, to, to share in confidence, I take confidentiality very seriously as a physician, it's healthy, it's cathartic. You know how sometimes the deepest truths seem to be the things that we end up making fun of in others? Well, a few weeks after the mass sighting, the governor of Arizona brought one of his staff out on stage in an alien costume, calling him the culprit of the mass sightings. And this gesture was considered to be highly offensive to the people who had seen the lights. But fast forward 10 years. The former governor of Arizona, right after the 10th anniversary, for whatever reason, He came forward to say that he actually saw one of the craft and that it was, in his own words, otherworldly. So as more The same governor who mocked it. Right. He had seen it before, but but he... He had seen it on March 13th, 1997. Had he denied seeing it? No, he just made a mockery of it at the time. Wow. And then said that there was panic. There was no panic. That's another thing I really have to stress. There was no panic with the witnesses. It was the complete opposite. And that's really important because in real time and long term, it woke people up to the fact that we're not alone in the universe. It changed people forever. Uh, You know, we're we're so inundated with the threat, 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 and harm, harm, harm. How do you think you're going to react when you see it? But as it got close, a calmness came over everyone, a connectedness to the phenomena, adults and children alike, that when it passed by, the kids wanted to run after it. They wanted their parents to drive, you know, and chase it. No one was scared. In fact, in almost 19 years now, there has not been one, not one report of harm, threat, or abduction associated with the Phoenix Lights phenomena. I would maybe walk up to the ship and try to introduce myself. Yeah, tell me more. And if they didn't speak language, we would try um, to understand each other with hand signals. Hand signals, cool. If we're not alone in the universe, how would that, you know, change our whole paradigm? I mean, it's just, uh, it's an awesome thought. You know, some people say that we can't handle it. We can't handle the truth. Um, And I think that's why for the last 50, 60 years, we've been spoon-fed different things in the media and whatever, even though it's missing disinformation, getting us ready. Um, And, you know, I hope in our lifetime that uh, we do find out what's really going on and join our galactic uh, friends out there um, because many of the people that have uh, seen these phenomena, as I said, there is a transformation that takes place, an awakening that takes place, a connectedness to the universe, to the earth, to each other that they have never known before. In fact, when I was interviewing other witnesses, they mentioned that they had had near-death experiences as children that was reawakened by the mass sighting. I found that really poignant because I did too. I actually met beings during my near-death experience that I have felt have been with me ever since I was eight years old. But had you forgotten as about guides. them? I actually had pushed the entire experience deep inside until right before, it's a long story, right before the, the mass sighting, as many people had done and shared with me. And that's why I found it so amazing that you know it, it, there was a connection there. 
what was the Phoenix Lights mass sighting about? Just looking at the data, and I just, as a scientist, try to look at the data, it speaks for itself. Something was visiting us to not only wake us up to their presence in a very non-threatening way, but also to wake us up to who we are as human beings, the positive potential we have as human beings. People that experienced the Phoenix Lights mass sighting went into the environmental movement, went into the peace movement. It just woke people up, which unexplained phenomena experiences will do. All you need is to open up your heart and your mind and learn about it. And you'll be very, very surprised at how many things happen serendipitously when your eyes are open. And you know what? It's a choice. Everybody comes from a different background, from a different upbringing, from a different belief system. Some people can't deal with this topic. Some people don't want to, and that's okay. Everyone in their own time. But one of the main reasons I came forward was not only to set the record straight, but to say, hey, here's the data. You look at it yourself, decide for yourself. But the bottom line is something out there is trying to wake us up to what we're doing to ourselves and our planet before it's too late. I was invited to present my substance abuse prevention education program where the Gila Bend Indian Reservation is. And I said, did anybody happen to see strange lights on March 13th? And they started to giggle. And I said, is that funny? And they said, are you kidding? We've been looking up at them for centuries. We call them sky people, light beings. It's part of their culture. Indigenous cultures worldwide have protocols to invite these phenomena in. Many think that these orbs are ancestors coming to give them comfort and guidance and motivation. And I have to say, as a little aside, something inspired me to do what I'm doing. Majorly, I gave up my medical career. I pushed it aside for seven years and then came forward. I haven't looked back. If there isn't life outside the Earth, I would be incredibly surprised. We, we did the equations, you know, that Carl Sagan worked out, um, that a society has to last a certain amount of time, be able to get through its nuclear phase, its boredom phase, etc., to last so that other intelligences could, could meet one another. It would be astounding to me if this was the only planet in all the multiverses that had life. It would be, it'd be crazy. The Rosicrucian Order has always held that there are other life forms elsewhere. And reincarnation isn't just limited to this planet. If we never are able to contact one another physically, there might be a way to contact one another psychically because that would not be limited by the speed of light. So that, I think, that may be the first way we contact beings from other planets is uh, in a psychic fashion. Well, I never thought I'd spend so much time listening to people talk about telepathy or paranormal experiences. You probably didn't either. I've always been a skeptic, and I still am. I used to sum it up by saying that there were a lot of crazy-ass people in the world. I guess my New Year's resolution, though, is this. If people believe in something, if they're not trying to suck my brain or my pocketbook, it doesn't hurt to explore their world. And as it turns out, Sometimes they're not that crazy. Why would thousands of people see lights in Phoenix and swear up and down that they're from another world? Why does the legend of a giant hairy humanoid persist? I don't want to be duped or believe in things that take away from the real wonder of science and all that it explains in the world, because that stuff's amazing. But I don't want to be the jaded know-it-all whose understanding of the world is boxed in. You know, this guy. You're good people. I'm going to say this once. I'm going to say it simple. And I hope to God, for your sakes, you all listen. There are no abominable snowmen. There are no Sasquatches. There are no big feet. <laughs> Am I missing something? <laughs> Don't believe anything because somebody else told you, even if it's somebody who supposedly has authority. Yes, I'd rather be oh, this guy. Lord God. Dr. Wrightwood, say hello to Harry. 
Think for yourself, figure it out for yourself. As science advances, I'm finding that just about any real understanding of even the most seemingly basic concepts like time and gravity require a leap of faith of some kind, no matter how scientific the approach is. Thanks so much for listening. Please let me know what you think. Or get involved in the show. Write me at jim at romeschooled.com. There's more information on our website where you can also find a great slideshow that Lydia Ritchie puts together for every episode. There's videos and other content there, too. I want to thank all the people who sat down in person with us to tell us their stories, because that is how we do. Anna and Maya, Croft and Dyack, Tracy Kenward, Dr. Lynn Kitai, Van Dyke Parks, Catherine Paul and her dad Kevin, and Tom Powell. Look them all up. They have amazing stories to tell that we couldn't get into here. And most importantly, thanks to Dana and Vern, who inspired the questions, topics, and came along for the ride. Romeschooled is written and produced by me, Jim Brunberg, with invaluable production assistance, concept, and website development by Lydia Ritchie. Ben Landsberg also helps produce, and we teamed up on the music together. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you out there. Bye.